Starry Night, known for being a painting. Famous for being swirly. Nobody thinks much about it, so let's have some fun. Let's find out why the Starry Night is secretly incredibly fascinating. Welcome to a whole new podcast episode, a podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm not alone. I'm joined by Lydia Bug and by Dan Hopper, two wonderful returning guests. Lydia was most recently on the show about chocolate. She's also a fantastic comedy writer. You can read her columns every week on 1-900-HOT-DOG, which is a fantastic comedy website. I write for them, you know, once a month or so. Lydia's there every week doing amazing stuff. Dan Hopper, also one of my favorite guests. He was most recently on an episode about zippers, and he is an old friend. Going back to our days at collegehumor.com, he's a managing editor at Ranker. He's also written everywhere from The New Yorker to The Washington Post. Also, I've gathered all of our zip codes and used internet resources like native-land.ca to acknowledge that I recorded this on the traditional land of the Canarsie and Lenape peoples. Acknowledge Dan recorded this on the traditional land of the Lenape people. Acknowledge Lydia recorded this on the traditional land of the Shawnee, Eastern Cherokee, and Saatsayaha peoples. And acknowledge that in all of our locations, Native people are very much still here. That feels worth doing on each episode. And today's episode is about The Starry Night, which is a painting made in 1889 by the artist Vincent Van Gogh. And I think it's mostly self-explanatory. This is one of the very few paintings that is in many people's heads already. I'll also have a direct link for you to see it. One pronunciation note, there's a very interesting situation with the name of this artist, because the name of that artist is pronounced many ways by many people, even though it's one Dutch name with an actual pronunciation based on many resources that I looked at and in particular listened to. I think the actual Dutch pronunciation is along the lines of Vincent van Gogh. And you, you, like, you don't say the G on the front. Gogh is the tricky last word there. However, for ease of podcasting, we're going to say it a whole lot of ways as we naturally say it across this episode. The most common pronunciation you run into in the United States is Vincent van Gogh. Also, I'm going to link an article from CNN because they covered a year 2020 exhibition at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, and that exhibition encouraged people to use the common U.S. pronunciation of Van Gogh, even though it is the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. There's also other languages and countries where it gets said other ways. Apparently, Van Gogh, with a pretty pronounced G, is very common in the U.K., there is one specific Dutch way to pronounce it. It's along the lines of Vincent van Gogh. And then also you will not hear us do that very often. So now you know. Only other setup to say is that this is the fourth episode of Secretly Incredibly Fascinating about a painting. There are previous episodes about American Gothic by Grant Wood, about The Scream by Edvard Munch, and about the Dogs Playing Poker series by Cassius Marcellus Coolidge. There's been a lot of fine art excitement in the patron polls in particular ever since I started doing that kind of topic. And shout out to patron Caroline Gaston in particular for really rooting for this topic specifically, the Starry Night. So I'm glad this episode happened. And here we go. Please sit back or sit at an easel in a mental institution. 
Either way, here's this episode of Secretly Incredibly Fascinating with Lydia Bug and Dan Hopper. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Dan, it is so good to have you back on, as always. And I always start by asking guests their relationship to the topic or opinion of it. Either of you can start, but how do you feel about the painting, The Starry Night? Uh, I really like it. It used to be my background on my credit card. Uh, <laughs> oh. Yeah, I don't, I don't know Wait, why. Wait, background of a, like it was printed on it. Yeah. And then yeah, when I handed cool. it to people, they were always like, whoa, like it was super special. It was just one of the options the credit card company <laughs> offered. And I was like, sure, that looks good. And people are always really impressed by it, um, which was fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And I recently went to the Van Gogh Live exhibit, too, which was very cool. <laughs> oh, is that um where they project stuff on the walls? I've seen yeah. ads for it. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like called Immersive, I think, Van Gogh. But it's just a big surround wall of like a movie of van gogh's pictures all kind of like swirling together in a really trippy way it's fun a spoiler for how i feel about it as a basic painting it's a really cool painting so i'm glad you're getting so much of it yeah. in your life that's great <laughs> alex is like it's below average uh pedestrian it's just like what? it's just Ripping on it. Uh, I had a actually kind of similar experience. I had a, went to a formal middle school and had to wear ties every day. And I had a Starry Night tie. And nice. people loved it. And they'd always be like, oh, Starry Night, Van Gogh. Like everyone wants to like let you know that they recognize the painting. They'd always like be out of their, go out of their way to, to point that out. Um, that was cool. Uh, I tried to find it. I guess I got rid of it in one of my moves because I feel like it'd be kind of mortifying to wear that to like a job interview now or something. But... Uh, don't still have it. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, love the painting. Uh, seen it at the MoMA. Been to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. I'm just trying to one-up you, Lydia. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I You're doing it. Good job. One. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did like a touristy thing. I assume everyone, every American used to go there and smoke pot and then go to the museum and be like, whoa, it's so trippy. And I, th- I think that's what you're supposed to do. Um, but really, I was just like... <laughs> afraid everyone was looking at me and knowing that I had just smoked pot. And so I was like pretending to read the plaques for like a minute and a half and stuff like that. It was kind of a nerve wracking experience, but it was nice. <laughs> what if I was like, yeah, I went and saw the painting. There was one terrified guy. Wonder who he was. I'll never know. Anyway. <laughs> it's like everyone there is clearly doing the same thing. But meanwhile, in my head, I'm like, I'm like, they all know I'm high. And my friends are like, that's like the basic paranoia of, because I, I never <laughs> smoked pot in college, really. So I'm like still a beginner when I do it. And I'm like doing all the cliche thing. I'm like, I know this sounds cliche, but I really think people are looking at us. And they're like, that is the thing. That's the, you're doing the thing. But, so that was my, that was my whole experience. It was like, just look at the plaque and they'll, they'll, they would never think a high person would read the plaque. And I'm like, I just can't decipher any of the words there. I'm just like, Oh man, am I, have I looked at this long enough? I think I have. I like that I have a whole other recent self-consciousness around this painting, which is that we moved to New York about a year ago. And then when we went to the Museum of Modern Art, I didn't know this painting was there. And clearly everyone else was aware. And it was like a highlight of their trip. But we like accidentally saw it on the floor it's on. And then I felt foolish. I was like, oh, I don't know enough about art, I guess. Uh, everybody knows it's here. <laughs> I didn't know it was there. 
Yeah, it's in New York, even though he's a Dutch artist and everything. Yeah. Okay. I knew they had a Van. I saw a Van Gogh when I was in New York, but it was decade, like a decade ago. And it was Cypresses. They didn't have Starry Night at the time. Everyone, there was like a special security guard for Cypresses and like a crowd of people around it. And I can't imagine. That would make sense. Like, yeah, it's got to be way worse than Starry Night. My, Because my other big self-consciousness around this painting is that uh, and I'll have a, just a direct link for people if they'd like to look at it directly. Like in this painting, there's a big like black spire looking thing that's most to the left side of the painting. And for a long time, I thought that was a church steeple. It turns out those are supposed to be cypress trees. And so now I know. Like I was just like, ah, oh, that pointy thing in Europe, probably a church, even though there's a church in the town below. <laughs> I like imagining like there's eight armed guards like marching back and forth directly in front of the painting at all times <laughs> at the MoMA just doing the like Wizard of Oz chant or something like, yeah and they're in the I, way can you I can't see, see it, it. please yeah. <laughs> just like keep marching in front of it and then they bayonet you you get two seconds and then they poke you with the bayonet you have to keep moving <laughs> that's what it felt like <laughs> but yeah like I in the run-up to this I was suddenly like wait, I don't totally know the composition of this painting. It's trees, not a church. I was wrong about it at the museum. I might be wrong about his last name. Had a lot of trepidation about this. I know a lot now, but boy, oh boy, uh, a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah, I, that was like one of three things I knew about the painting and was wrong. I just assumed that was like a church steeple on the left. Yeah. You know so, the, right. the rumor about what the, the thing is, right? Like, I don't know if we're going to cover that later, but there's like a popular rumor that the cypress tree is a woman's hair that like Van Gogh, Van Gogh, when oh. he was in a mental hospital, saw a woman throw herself out of her window and like flew down in front of him. And that's her hair like flying up as she's falling out of the window. Wow. Wow. I have not read that theory being a thing, but I think I it think leads it's us just into like a bunch a weird, of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a weird internet rumor. But I, I <laughs> if you look at it, it does kind of like you can see where it could be that. But also, yeah. it's a cypress tree. <laughs> is, that, is that like the Van Gogh version of Phil Collins writing In the Air Tonight about after seeing someone drowning and yes. like calling oh. the person out at the concert, which is also not true, but awesome. Yeah, let's make this spookier, even though it's already kind of spooky. <laughs> it is very spooky. I think that, that leads us into this next segment here, because on every episode, our first fascinating thing about the topic is a quick set of fascinating numbers and statistics. This week, that's in a segment called... What the world needs now is stats, sweet stats. That's the only thing that there's just too small of a number of. Gorgeous. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that name was submitted by Linus Wesley and in some ways Austin Powers. But, uh, but we have a new name for this segment every week. Please make a Massillian whacking best possible. Submit to SifPod on Twitter or to SifPod at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, this this topic, there's going to be a lot of mental illness stuff because that's the artist we're talking about, Vincent Van Gogh or Van Ha, however it's pronounced. The The first number is a little over 13 months. A little over 13 months, that's the amount of time between Vincent painting this painting and Vincent dying. Uh, he had a brief oh. career, he had a brief life, and he painted this in June 1889 at a mental institution uh, he checked out of that institution the next year and two months later dies of a gunshot, probably self-inflicted. Probably. I've never heard that it was uh, in contention before. I thought we knew. That's kind of creepy mystery. 
Yeah, he he was saying somewhere he went out for the day and then he came back with a bullet in himself and they asked him what was going on and he was like, I'm just not feeling well and then passed away that night. I, I feel like I, our, yeah. our roles as guests on the podcast is always like you say some statistics or whatever and we're like, we riff on them, but then sometimes it's like so dark. It's just like <laughs> he painted his life's work while in a mental institution and then took his own life and died very poor and never enjoyed the success. And I'm just like, all right, riff time. <laughs> <laughs> LOL. <Yeah. laughs> what a fail. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But it, yeah, I feel like some people like part of the enthusiasm around him is this like brief candle of a guy. He only fully got into making art full time at age 28 after trying jobs as an art dealer and then a teacher and then a church pastor was a goal, but started painting full time at age 28 and then by age 37 had died. So being an artist was a small part of his life and most of his art came from the end of it. That's a, That sounds like one of those like trying to be motivational but demotivational internet things where it's like don't give up van gogh didn't start painting till he was 28 and i'm like well i'm way older than that already so i'm gonna give up i'm not gonna start a new thing now yeah and he did not have a pleasant time of it yeah yeah, oh, yeah that too <laughs> yeah if your goal is to be like van gogh oof yeah <laughs> i made this meme about not giving up now <laughs> to, to take a giant sip of coffee and read about every other aspect of van gogh's life yeah. <laughs> now that I've widely shared this meme and tied my identity to, oh, God, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And the, the next number here is sort of in keeping with that. It is 142 paintings in 12 months. At 142 paintings in 12 months, that's about one painting per two days. That's how much Vincent van Gogh painted while in one stay at a mental institution. Like Lydia said, he was in an asylum when he painted this painting. That is true, regardless of the rest of the theory. And he self-admitted to it. This was about six months after the incident where he mutilated his own ear and cut most of it off. But he checked himself into an institution. Uh, the name of it is Saint-Paul de Mazole, which was a former monastery in the south of France in a town called Saint-Rémy. And he was not very well in the institution, but... Uh, according to some of his biographers, it was almost like an art prison. Like there was not a lot to do besides paints. And so when he was well, he painted and made a lot of stuff. Wow. So that's all I need to do if I want to be really creative is just lock myself in an art prison and then I can write a full book. <laughs> well, I feel like anyone could be that productive if they didn't have the internet, though. Right? Yeah. yeah. I would just be like on Twitter and stuff and just be like scrolling time. And be like, oh, I got to do my... Ugh. I gotta do my painting. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just, all right. I'm gonna take a shower. I'm gonna think about the painting in the shower. I'm gonna come out of the shower and I'm gonna nail it. That's what I'm gonna do. Yeah, the idea of his pitch process is really, really baffling. Like, he's like, okay, I want it to look like a creepy town with like some orbs, lots of orbs, (laughs) trying stuff out, throwing stuff at the wall. Big tree. I think big tree. I don't know how you do that for paint. I can't draw or paint at all. I have no talent. So I don't know how you conceptualize a painting at all. I can't even imagine it. (laughs) I I, I don't think I've had 114 ideas in my life total. Oh, 142. Sorry. 142. Oh, my God. I undershot it even. Yeah. And that includes everything. That includes like, you know, what to make for dinner. Like I'm counting all ideas total. I don't know. In my lifetime, maybe it's like 200 or something like that. 
so, <laughs> yeah. So he, he, he really, that, that's very impressive to me to like, just, and obviously wasn't working off any kind of visuals or anything, right? He was just kind of, he was in a Ooh. literal room almost and was creating these landscapes kind of just. So uh, yes and no, because it, it turns out he, he did have a window. So he could look through okay. the window, but also uh, initially on uh, coming to the asylum, he was not allowed out of the grounds, but the grounds had a lot of mm-hmm. gardens and uh, really the main treatment they recommended to patients was take a walk in the garden, which is fine, but you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then later on, they did allow him to take walks in the nearby countryside if he was supervised by a warden. So like okay. really, really art prison, but it started to verge on toward minimum security i guess i would call it like they would let him walk mm-hmm. around with a guy following him and he did lots of sketches and notes as he did that what was the institution's relationship to the paintings does he like walk out of the of the building with all of the paintings and you know retains the rights and everything like was there ever oh. any time where they were like <laughs> hey like you know we are privy to some of this or i you know i don't know maybe that's cynical or like like no you just they never took any of it out with okay yeah well he wasn't famous for so long after he died i feel like they probably were like yeah you can have all your paintings (laughs) like (laughs) like somebody and they're making little finger paintings or something and they're like no you don't have to leave these behind vince you can take those take this (laughs) out of here we got room (laughs) that doesn't even look like a city what is this it's creepy (laughs) <laughs> it's both it's both haunting and beautiful i don't like it get it out of here it's <laughs> my south of france accent <laughs> yeah because uh, two other things about this place one is that it was very expensive apparently vincent and his brother teo looked into some like publicly run asylums and then ended up spending a lot on this one instead so the you know if nothing else they were paying them i guess they felt compensated enough And then the other thing about it is it was a time when very few places or people had an understanding of mental illness or illness in general, but especially this place, they didn't really offer mental health care. They just had people observed, they restricted their diet, and that was it. Also, the majority of the patients there were female, uh, but that's because they mistakenly believed that mental illness was a primarily female phenomenon in France at this time, in the 1880s. Uh, and then the lead doctor was an ophthalmologist. He was a eye doctor. He was not a like oh, psychologist God. or anything else. So it was, this was like just an old monastery that was a prison for people who were not feeling well mentally. That was it. <laughs> just like yeah, mental when, health. Oh, God. Oh, I was just going to say, when, when you said their cure for like schizophrenia was to go for a walk in the garden, I was pretty <laughs> sure it wasn't going to be great. <laughs> Yeah. yeah mental health care in the 1880s is like 20 doctors in coats observe you and then they're like hmm you would make a good public fool like <laughs> I think that's like like i think he could hack it as a fool and it's like should we make him help him get better at all they're like nah, i don't know <laughs> walk it seems like a lot of ghosts in his head let's drill a hole in it <laughs> <laughs> Like it's it's some of the exact kind of guys who are American baseball scouts, but they're from the circus. They're like looking for talent, yeah. you know. Like <laughs> that was the group. <laughs> yeah, it was like both not great and in some ways helpful because uh, we don't know exactly what Van Gogh's condition was. Like it might have been epilepsy, it might have been bipolar disorder with manic episodes, 
but whatever it was, he also really throughout adulthood worsened it with a lot of alcohol, not eating well, also insomnia and overwork. And so those things he were he was doing, the asylum did restrict. And so in that way, it was beneficial. But they also did not like cure anything or resolve anything. And he ultimately died shortly after. So was the role of the building just kind of like, we will try to moderate your, you know, impulses and stuff, not necessarily like we will study your condition and try to improve it. Exactly. Like yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like at dinner, he was allowed a little bit of wine. They also only let him have a little bit of meat because they believe that meat is a stimulant, which is also not true. It's, it's just a lot of like either wrong ideas or unhelpful ideas. But but the basic conditions of just being forced to sit in a room a lot of the time uh, helped him paint in that way. So there you go. It was like self-care. He was doing a year of self-care. Yeah. Just really working on him. And painting and walking in the garden. Sounds nice. Yeah, for what it was, you know? Yeah. Other than the prison part. Other than the prison part. <laughs> I, I don't know who needs to hear this, but if you're neurodivergent, it's okay to paint 142 paintings in a year. <laughs> Just like one of those like viral Instagram posts. Yeah, the internet has so much like mental health detritus like that, doesn't it? Like just people being like, oh, are you feeling bad? Mm -hmm. I decided I know how it works. And it's just somebody with an Instagram account. Yeah. Like, I don't know. You don't know. <laughs> it's always like something very general and arbitrary, too. It's like, yeah, if you have OCD, it's okay to not go up the steps or something. And it has like 9 million <laughs> shares. You're like, what is? All right. <laughs> I wasn't arguing with that. I've never even heard this. Like, what? <laughs> Yeah, and Van Gogh's particular illness, I feel like he would be like, it's okay to paint 142 paintings. And then you'd look at the paintings and you'd be like, ooh, I don't know if that's helping you, man. I don't, that, that's pretty freaky. Wow, this, this is kind of amazing. So next, next number here is nine, because nine is the number of paintings, including the Starry Night, that Vincent mailed to his brother Teo in September 1889. So he paints it in June and then mails it to his brother a few months later. And among other things, his brother said he should stop doing imaginative painting because it's bad for his mental health and like too taxing. Like he can't hand he should his brother said to avoid, quote, the mysterious regions of imaginative painting. And his brother's reasoning was that it would stress Vincent out too much and he should just paint like cypress trees or iris flowers or like stuff he was looking at. So his brother kind of said that he was like, take it easy, man. Like, just <laughs> just look at a flower, paint the flower, cool it. <laughs> and those were what was like popular at the time, too. Those were really realistic paintings. So I'm sure he was maybe like, you know, maybe you could paint something that makes some money someday, buddy. <laughs> like, just just paint a real flower for once. God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we have a, a bunch of letters between Vincent and Teo, and apparently Teo said that a couple of the daytime landscape paintings were impressive to him. But the whole rest of the set, including Starry Night, quote, the rest tell me nothing because they lack individual intention and feeling in the lines, end quote. Uh, and then Teo just sat on Starry Night and it was not exhibited in Vincent's life. It's pretty brutal feedback for your mentally ill brother. <laughs> painted right like yes. even if it were not one of the most famous paintings of all time it would be pretty weird to be like i see nothing in this do 
just knock it off, you know. It's like, yeah, hey, I made eight <laughs> paintings and gave them to you. It's pretty good therapy for me. She's like, no, it's not. It's just paint something easy. This sucks. <laughs> yeah. Again, with the, with the orbs, with the cypress trees. <laughs> okay. Kinda, yeah. He's, he's just over it immediately. Let me, let, me, let me guess. There's orbs. Oh, surprise. Oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. <laughs> Brother, I've painted you seven more phenomenal like haunting landscapes she's like tell him i'm not here i don't want to deal with this right now oh, i'm so tired of my my struggling brother painting incredible paintings for me this is this is horrible he shows it to other people like can you believe this they're like crying we're like oh my god it's the most beautiful thing i've ever seen he's like what yeah. Garbage. <laughs> Surely it's my friends who are wrong. It's like exactly principal yeah. skip in that meme. Like <laughs> So I assume he like threw them all in a river and then they floated downstream and ended up at like an art gallery or something. Like <laughs> phenomenal. I don't I don't know. What what's the journey to, to fame here? Let's get into the big takeaways because that does that. Oh, and one one number leading into him is seven Euros. The amount of money, seven euros, that is the ticket price to visit this asylum in San Remy in France. And their website lists the price, also says you can see Van Gogh's room, you can see his window, which leads us I into... I thought you meant, like, at the time, like, they were just letting people in to look at the people oh. in the asylum. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. That's awful. <laughs> you got to cash in before they get called up to the circus. Yeah. You got to you gotta make some, <laughs> some scratch. Uh, <laughs> but no, that they do tours of this place now, uh, and partly because it's also a historic site. But that all leads us into takeaway number one. The Starry Night is a fictional mashup of a real place. Because Van Gogh, he sat at like a real window in real life when he painted this. But basically every element is something he pulled from somewhere else or redid or you, like you can visit where he painted it and it's not what he painted, if that makes sense. Can you do like a walking tour of the different elements of the thing or like what? It's just sort like different of. stuff he saw over the course of his stay there or life or? Yeah, he did a lot of walks in the region and then did sketches mm. and notes and then went back to his like art prison cell and assembled a painting. And the the key sources here, there's a book called Van Gogh, The Life that is by art biographers Stephen Nyfey and Gregory Whitesmith. And another book all about this painting by Richard Thompson, professor of fine art at the University of Edinburgh. But you can go to this asylum. There's a little plaque by the window. You can see his view that he looked at when he painted it. But I'll have a picture linked of what the view is because it's not the painting. It's like a little bit of a wheat field. There's a couple trees in the distance. Uh, and also this window had a bunch of iron bars on it. Again, this is like mental prison. And so Van Gogh painted this at a window with a bunch of iron bars. He is fully just reinventing what he's looking at. I thought you were going to say like the K the, there's like a KFC in place of the Cypress tree now or something like horrible. It's like, it's like, just imagine it without that. And you're like, eh, it's kind of close. <laughs> yeah. I am. I'm kind of surprised there's not stuff either. Like they, they've preserved the history, but it's not uh, painted, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Starry night flats, luxury suites. Right. It's just some, like apartment that has like the exposed duct like ceilings, like, it looks like every apartment in the world. A couple of vape shops right there in the view. 
<laughs> Minor league baseball yeah. team. They have a Van Gogh mascot. Uh, you know, that's really it's fully it's a cashed big year. Something. Full of ears, like Anna Um But uh, but yeah, and so he is in our prison, and then really exaggerates what he's looking at. Apparently, the clearest sign is that cypress tree in the foreground. It's like this big, swirly, swoopy set of black lines. But I'll have a picture linked of real cypress trees in Provence in the south of France because they grow very compact, very tight, very straight up. And so if this painting was a depiction of real life, it would basically be during a hurricane. Like it would take massive wind to get these trees moving the way they are, where where they do kind of look like hair or, or something else that would make more sense. <laughs> That's very cool. I'm just looking yeah. at the painting right now. <laughs> great painting that's my contribution (laughs) yeah same i like it too (laughs) no (laughs) i think it's partly great because he just made up everything the town he painted is based on this town of san remy but in real life that was a large town of six thousand people and in the painting he reduced it to a few buildings he also painted this whole painting during the day so whole thing was made in daytime just like remembering night and apparently one reason you can tell is when you look at the painting, there's like a lighter white band of sky. It's running just above the hills in the painting horizontally. And that's based on what morning mist looks like. Okay. So that doesn't make sense at night. It, it doesn't add up. And it's because he painted this during the day based on like memories and sketches. I mean, it makes sense that his view from from art prison would not be that picturesque. Like, that's a really quaint view of a little town. And I feel like oh, yeah. they're not giving the art prison people that gorgeous little view. Right, the fantastic real estate. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Dude, did anyone, after he became famous, try to, like, do mimic this and be like, oh, man, I want to go to the asylum and for a year and crank out some paintings? Or, you know, did, it, did oh. that become, like, a, a, a thing or, you know... I don't know. I don't know of any stories like that. It definitely remained an institution. And I I think Van Gogh just not being famous until later in life, that probably kind of put a damper on people uh, borrowing that Mm -hmm. trick. Yeah. Because it seemed like the asylum would suddenly like cash in on that. Just be like, hey, stay here for a year for, you know, (laughs) eat really euro or whatever. Eat really bland food and paint. That'll be great for you. We'll barely feed you, and you'll become a famous artist, too. Just terrible grift. All these, like, like college graduates doing it. There's definitely yeah. someone in L.A. running that retreat right now where they just feed you mm-hmm. crackers and force you to make art. It's actually healthier than normal eating and sleeping. You're like, no, it's not. There's not every, every like, f- phenomenon. It's like, actually, the stuff you do normally is bad. It's like, it's fine. It's fine. No, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, like they did accidentally put him on a more regular schedule in a way that helped him, I think, paint more. Because like when he was just out on his own, he would not sleep, paint all night if he felt like it, and then kind of crash. But Relatable. like there was a lights out time where the staff made everybody stop doing stuff. But then it also leads to him just kind of making up the entire night sky. Like the painting has a crescent moon. And then people have bothered to do computer modeling of what the skies were in 1889 when he painted, and the moon was almost full. Uh, All the star positions are pretty made up. Apparently, the most realistic night sky element in the painting is Venus. If people look at the painting, there's like a whitish star that's just to the right of the cypresses. 
And that's because Venus was very bright in the sky and looks like that. Uh, but also he probably partly painted Venus because he painted in the day and Venus was visible in the daytime sky uh, a lot of the time. 1800s Neil deGrasse Tyson tweet about it. Like, <laughs> Actually, da, da, da. You're like, yeah, I, oh, that's not, it. Starry Night's not realistic. The weird haunting, swirling image. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, because also he, as far as artistic school, Van Gogh is considered a post-impressionist painter, which means doing some impressionist things where you're depicting real life, but also going out of your way to be more lively, more colorful, make choices. And so, you know, a lot of this is him saying, no, I think the night sky should be like this, and I think the town should be this. And so uh, I find it amazing that there is a tourist destination where you can go see where he painted it, and you don't see the starry night scene at all. It's just a totally different field in France. <laughs> yeah, because it feels like he's just tweaking life a little bit, but really, he was tweaking life a lot. He had a lot of notes. <laughs> yeah, like, and apparently really widely influenced by just art to make all these decisions. Like, he, he wrote to his sister that he was uh, thinking a lot about the poems of Walt Whitman when he painted this. And he said that Whitman sees under the great starlit vault of heaven a something which, after all, one can only call God and eternity in its place above the world. Like He, he was like, I'm going to be a poet of the sky. Uh, there's also a, a rumor that he might have been thinking of the artist Hokusai, who made a print called The Great Wave off Kanagawa, which people have probably seen. Like It's a painting where a big wave is going from left to right, and there's a little Mount Fuji below it. Uh, Van Gogh was a big fan of Japanese art and prints, and might have seen it, might have influenced the composition of this. Like It's all made up, but from a real place. I always love to hear notes from back then that people wrote each other because now nobody's saying stuff about art <laughs> like the great. It does nobody's quoting Walt Whitman in our text to each other. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> what up? <laughs> All we do now is just no. Nobody really? sounds like that anymore. Every letter from that time, no matter what they're saying, they're just describing the modernities of their day is the most beautiful thing you've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> right? Just be like, hey, Van Gogh, you start the show yet? And he's like, no. I'm like, yeah, me neither. <laughs> Do you watch The Bear? He's like, no. I'm like, okay, cool. It's my text conversation with Van Gogh. <laughs> oh, is that on Hulu? I'm in the asylum. The asylum doesn't have Hulu. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Cool, cool, cool. All right, cool. <laughs> wow, tough asylum. Tough. Yeah, tough. Yeah. You see, your previous oh, no. text to him was from like three months ago, and it was him explaining that he's in the asylum, and you're like, oh, <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I forgot he explained this to me already. <laughs> He's made it clear. <laughs> Next thing here is a big trumpet sound for a big takeaway. Before that, we're going to take a little break. We'll be right back. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. 
Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! It's hard to explain what happens on Jordan Jesse Go. So, I had my kids do it. Saying swear words. Saying swear words. Yeah, um, bad jokes. Bad jokes? Bad jokes. Maybe it's like you tell people that you're going to interview them, and then you just stay there, like, like really quiet and try and creep them out. <laughs> it's just really boring. Because of Jordan, right? Not me. Because of both of you. Oh. Subscribe to Jordan Jesse Go, a comedy show for grown-ups. Next big takeaway here, this also involves the mind quite a bit. Takeaway number two. The brush strokes of the starry night are measurably engineered to make you feel like the painting is moving. And this this comes from that element where a lot of people you know, either with a fun drug or not, they look at the painting and they say, oh, wow, it looks like it's moving. It turns out that, like, people have looked into the cognitive psychology of this and also used physics to detect a really powerful ability of this painting to make you feel like the sky is moving. It's painted in an amazing way to do that. It's crazy how much we've thought about this painting in the hundreds of years since it was painted, I'm assuming. Hundred? How long ago was it? I don't even know. Yeah, 1889, so... 133 years. Okay. And I just, I feel like he painted so much at the time. He probably, I wonder, he didn't take very long to paint it, right? He probably painted it in a couple days. And we've thought about it for thousands and millions of hours and been like, oh, we've brought engineers to look at the brush strokes. Van Gogh finished this and was like, great. Next. (laughs) Bring me some sunflowers. (laughs) His brother's like, I guess I could set drinks on it or something. I don't know. <laughs> Paint's really thick, so that it could be a little table. <laughs> Just put it in the bathroom downstairs. I don't know. Yeah. Hey, Theo Van Gogh, weird hat. Oh, that's my brother's painting. I don't know. I was trying to think of something. Uh... Weird hat. Um, I, 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 I do feel that way, though, with a lot, a lot of art. To, you know, like a lot of bands I love their first album. They just like recorded something in like three hours when they were 22. And it's like, <laughs> I know every word of the album, you know? And it's like, they never thought making that, that they were like, this is going to be a classic in the genre that thousands of people will know forever. It's like, it's, it's interesting to have that kind of like, to apply that self-consciousness to a thing that wasn't self-conscious to begin with. Yeah, especially because he like he was doing this between episodes of extreme mental illness and just like he was just make to some extent just making stuff and mm-hmm. from June sixteenth to eighteenth of eighteen eighty nine in those couple of days he made a painting that we're gonna make this whole podcast about <laughs> that's all that's all it was they just kept going <laughs> and he just accidentally painted it so that it's engineered in a way to look like it's moving and stuff he just was like whoops ah I like it. <laughs> Yeah, and like, and in ways that people have very precisely measured. Uh, if if nothing else, I'm very excited to link the Museum of Modern Art because they have an upload of their latest digitization of the painting because they have it, so they can just measure it all they want. And in 2020, they finished a new digitization where they cataloged each like little bit of paint on it to a precision of three microns 
which is less than half the width of a human blood cell. So they have it down to smaller than blood cells. It's a 3D rendering made of over 329 million points of data. Like this, this is one of the most massively analyzed things on Earth, just ever. Yeah. So yeah, you, that's, you can't I mean, steal just... an atom of that painting. They know it's there. <laughs> walk it, stealing it uh, an right. atom at a time, trying to walk it out like Shawshank with the dirt. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you get too close and you have vapors of of Starry Night on you, you cannot leave the museum with that because they'll know. <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's just such a wild disparity, though, like we were saying, between how much it ended up being analyzed and what it was like at the time, where it's like, yes, in you know, Teo's closet. Don't, don't the brush strokes make it look like it's moving? And they're just like, shut up and eat your anti masturbation cereal or whatever. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> we'll, we'll electric shock your crotch if you don't <laughs> go to bed or whatever the medicine was. Like, like they were not even trying that hard. It was just an eye doctor and a staff. Like yeah. I don't know, walk in the garden. <laughs> I, I'm not going to put the electricity rig together, man. I'm busy. Like that's a lot of labor. Forget it. <laughs> they explain this like long, detailed, like a litany of like 25 specific mental illnesses he has, and the doctor's like, uh, might be his eyes. I don't know. Does <laughs> he <Yeah. laughs> <Seen any> glasses? <laughs> like. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, he's got one ear. We can't put normal glasses on him. Oh, well. All right. Uh. <laughs> I give up. That's all I had. <laughs> Do you want to hold this in front of your face all of the time? No? Okay. Well, he's uncurable. Send him to the circus. <laughs> Can... The like... idea that circus is the end is really funny to me for some reason. They all went to the circus. Yeah. Is that, or you could be like a like a front lawn like gnome for like a rich Victorian person? They're like, I have people in my estate. It's like mystical. Like just, that, that was like a trend, I think. It's like like Cuban chess and stuff too. Like just yeah. look at these props. Ah, I love it. This one won't stop painting things though. It's super annoying. I've got, I've got like 142 of this guy's paintings laying around. Ugh. You stop painting. I'm paying you to just be in my garden to show off my Victorian richness. Just like amble around. All right. But on that ugly painting, it looks like it's moving. I hate it. <laughs> That's not even what the moon looked like at that time of year, you idiot. Cypress yeah. bushes don't move that much. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, and like the the movement in this painting, so there's like a cognitive psychology set of theories and explanation for it, but it's basically that there's two things going on at once. There's the colors of the painting and then there is the luminance. And I had not heard of luminance, but it's a characteristic of like intensity of light, like how intense the light is coming from these brush strokes to your eyes. And according to a TED Ed video about this, they say that the combination of that means your brain is responding two ways at once when you look at the painting. There's a part of the visual cortex that sees light contrast and motion, but not color. So when it sees paint that has the same luminance it tries to blend that together but then another part of your brain called the primate subdivision is seeing the different colors and not blending them and so your brain is blending and not blending the colors at the same time or sorry it's blending and not blending the paint at the same time 
And so because the colors and the luminance are blending and not blending, it just ends up feeling like motion. Cool. So my my brain's trying to like hunt the painting or something. It's like, it's moving, you know, <laughs> trying to calculate how to hunt it or whatever is going on in the brain. Yeah, I know. I know I just said a lot of cognitive psychology stuff, but but yeah, that's the the super basic version. I understood the... every part of it, so that's fine. I just like the idea yeah. that like Van Gogh, who's, you know, not doing great at this time, kind of breaks our brains <laughs> so that we can see what he Whoa. what he sees. It's like, oh, yeah, this is messed up. I get it. <laughs> and that's kind of a theory about it. Yeah, that like in particular later in his career and life when he was especially having more of a breakdown and more of a problem than he was before, he was like seeing the world a little bit differently. And so then he painted that, and then that's why it is so distinctive, yeah. But which is uh, uh, kind of terrifying, but also it, it leads to this art. And they, they've, they like, really gone out of their way to try to measure this stuff because it was partly sparked by, in 2004, jumping to NASA. Wow, NASA is involved. Uh, the team running the Hubble Space Telescope, they took pictures of a dust and gas formation around a star, and part of the team said, that reminds me of The Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. And from there, they proceeded to bother to do some math where they compared the brush strokes of van Gogh's painting to the physical movement of dust and gas in space. This is based on a physics concept called fluid turbulence. And according to their work, they say that like van Gogh's later paintings from his peak periods of mental illness have brush strokes that closely match the like fluid turbulence of real dust and gas in space and that his earlier paintings don't have that so much. And like other seemingly similar artists, like the scream by Edvard Munch, it also doesn't have that like either because of his brain chemistry or changes to how he worked. He started really capturing something. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Like there, there's like actual equations based around pretty tricky physics stuff that they bother to apply to this. And they think that, by accident or on purpose, he really nailed the process of making paint on a canvas look like it's moving. He accidentally painted space, like yeah, in the eighteen hundreds. Whoops, painted space, and yeah. and he's a, that's so crazy. That's like crazy weird genius stuff. <laughs> and during the day, it's a lot more impressive than taking a liberty with the phase of the moon. Yeah, Stupid other <laughs> critics. Whoever that was. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, I figured out physics a hundred years in advance. And they're like, crescent moon, you loser. <laughs> Try again, Vinny. You painted the beauty of space on accident? Okay, sure, but that town is really small. <laughs> I feel like from your perspective, the town wouldn't be like that small. <laughs> I believe the haberdashery was on the left. <laughs> Throw this in the trash. And like, this is where the asylum eye doctor really steps in. Like, I've got it from here. I think I know how to fix that. Uh, he's nearsighted. <laughs> Done. Fixed it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you'll see the painting move when I throw it into trash. Hi, <laughs> doctor. Very mad at it. 
See, the sad thing about that is so many people like hear that statistic and they think I'm Van Gogh in my time. And they're right. It's always the people that are writing like, you know, a reskin of Harry Potter or something. They're uh-huh. like, no yeah. one understands me and my Harry Potter where it's necromancers instead of wizards. But someday after I'm gone. <laughs> yeah, Van Gogh's own brother told him he's. Therefore, if people tell me my stuff's. It is Van Gogh. It is equal to Van Gogh. It's like, that's not how the equation goes at all. Yeah. <laughs> what was the hit popular art at the time that he was not living up to or whatever? Like, what, what would have impressed the people who saw this at the time? Because, I, you know, I think of like, oh, 1880, Van Gogh. But it's like, that wasn't what was yeah. the thing at the time. So, like, what, you know, what was he painting against, like, in the popular landscape? Like, That's a great question. It, it's oddly a lot of people similar to him, and especially mm-hmm. right after his lifetime, people in a movement called Fauvism will be heavily influenced by him and then make him more famous retroactively. But okay. uh, it was a lot of Impressionists and including people he was friends with. Like, the night he cut off his own ear... The first thing that happened that night was he took a razor and attacked Paul Gauguin, who is wow. now a very, very famous artist, Paul Gauguin. But Gauguin was like, stop attacking me with a razor. And then Van Gogh went home and cut his ear off and then brought it to a lady. Oof. Hmm. So he was like right in the thick of popular art, but not popular. Mm-hmm. It is It is crazy how much that resembles like the ecosystem of like any scenes like... You know, yeah. I, I just keep thinking of music scenes where it's like, you know, th- this band kind of started it, but wasn't popular. But then now people discovered them after they died. But the people they influenced got very famous, like a couple years later and stuff. You know, it's yeah, just interesting how that how that mechanism like repeats itself over and over again, even in way different mediums. Yeah. And also there there's another surprising element here because this leads right into the last main takeaway for the main show. Takeaway number three. The main reason we've heard of the Starry Night is Vincent Van Gogh's sister-in-law. It turns out after his death and then his brother's death right after, his brother's wife, whose name was Joanna Bonger, did a lot of work kind of throughout the rest of her life to make Vincent Van Gogh famous and also make the huge amount of art she inherited uh, valuable. So not while he was alive, she was like, you know... (laughs) No need to encourage him. But now that I have all these paintings, you know, he was pretty good when you think about it. If you turn sideways and kind of squint, I kind of like this starry night. Yeah. I was going to say, some of these stars are out of position, but it's starting to grow on me a little bit. I'd pay a few million dollars for this if I were, you know, someone. Right. I wrote in this letter while he was in the asylum that said, do better. But, you know, now. (laughs) Really inspiring, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, because Van Gogh, like a lot of the legend around him is that he was totally unknown in life. And it turns out toward the end of his life, he was a little bit in the scene and starting to get noticed. Two months before he died, he had 10 paintings shown in a major exhibition uh, and then one of them sold for a sum of 400 francs, which was apparently big money at the time. Uh, but it's called the Red Vineyard near Arles. And it's, uh, I'll have a picture linked. It's apparently 
the only painting we know he sold during life. There might have been one or two more. Um, and he was also exhibited alongside artists like Henri Toulouse-Lautrec, friends with Paul Gauguin. Like he, it's hard to say, but he might have been on the verge of getting more notice in the scene. But then he uh, died, possibly killing himself. Yeah, that's so sad. He was just starting to get famous. And then he was like, you know what? Not feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's wild. Yeah, just the the mental illness and everything else. And and then also his yeah. brother was just sitting on some of his paintings, such as The Starry Night. His brother was like, this is not great. I'll just hang out to it. Um, but then from there, there's this progression where uh, before he passes away, Vincent is constantly writing to Teo, very close relationship to him. And then in early 1889, Vincent freaks out because Teo is in love and is going to marry this girl, Joanna Bonger, who is a pianist, an English teacher in Amsterdam, very educated, very well-traveled. And Teo's in love with her, and then Vincent tries to blow it up because Vincent is concerned Teo won't pay attention to him now. Like, he's he's like... My best friend's wedding. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Basically... Is he? He's so Vincent is Julia Roberts. That's awesome. That's really good. Yeah. <laughs> Movie does not end quite the same way. Thankfully, yeah. test audiences were not a big fan of the original ending. <laughs> yeah, that would definitely ruin the rom com vibes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We set up that she had the mental illness for the year. Like, I still don't think this ending is gonna really work. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. When Julia Roberts attacks Paul Gauguin with a razor, a lot of action, a lot of action, a lot of tension, pretty dope, but. Oh, that's some family drama. (laughs) Yeah. He ultimately, Vincent does not get invited to their wedding because in his letters to Teo, he told him to, and this is translated, but he told him to quote, just screw the girl instead of marrying her. And then after that didn't work, he tried to say all of marriage is a scam and that it's a loveless function of social position. And then Vincent's like last emergency move was that he threatened to join the French Foreign Legion, which is a military unit for non-French people to go off to distant places and risk their lives. And he was like, if you don't pay enough attention to me, I'm going to join the French Foreign Legion. (laughs) And Teo said, that's manipulative and a threat and I'm marrying this girl I love. No. (laughs) Wow, toxic wow. brother. <laughs> yeah, he was like mentally ill and hurting and maybe a bad guy. And so he did all this <laughs> stuff. And then his brother married uh, this lady anyway. And then who, who be- helped him become famous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then and then Vincent is basically the luckiest brother in law ever. Like he tried to blow up the marriage and then she <laughs> made him famous for all of time. So it's pretty cool for for him. <laughs> His brother's like, I I really think you'd like this girl. She's very good at making artists extremely famous and wealthy. He's like, no, I hate her. You shouldn't marry her. She's like, your paintings are amazing. I could definitely get this in a museum. I don't want to hear it. I'm I'm going to Siam. He's looking on from the afterlife like, man, I called that one wrong. Dang. (laughs) Freezing cold takes. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Yeah. She's the one person who likes his work and he hates her. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, yeah. 
<laughs> I love the brush strokes to make it look like it's moving. No, it doesn't. It stopped. It's st- I can't even it's look like- at this anymore now that I know you like it. The phase of the moon is even right. It sucks. <laughs> yeah, she's like, she seems like a really amazing lady because then the progression here is Vincent dies in July of 1890. Uh, earlier that year, Teo and Joanna had had a baby, a son. And then six months after Vincent dies, Teo dies of a disease. And so Joanna is a widow with a one-year-old son and also has like a stack of paintings by pretty unknown artist Vincent Van Gogh, like taking up space in her home and people advised her to like sell them for pennies or just throw them away. And instead, what she does is keep them, uh, sell her and Teo's home, flip that capital into buying a boarding house she makes a living running a boarding house and working as a translator, and then also just does a massive amount of networking across the entire art scene and like painstakingly butters up the right people, donates key works to the right exhibitions, then raises the value of other ones that way. Like just spends decades making it, uh, Vincent Van Gogh into a famous artist. Uh, and then also benefits from the Fauvist movement of the early 1900s, being influenced by him, partly by her doing that work. And that's how he became famous, is his sister-in-law. Wow. Who he hated. The one person he dislikes is the one that makes gets to make all the money off of his work. That too. <laughs> oh, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the, the other labor she does is she takes all of Vincent and Teo's letters to each other, because she inherited all of it progressively through them both dying and she takes that translates all of it from french to english compiles it gets it published in a lot of volumes and then helps build this like dramatic story of the tormented brilliant artist like it's because with him it's not just the art it's this narrative of this like brief flame out candle you know and so so also we also we know the terrible stuff he said because she published the letters but like uh <laughs> oh, no she really really put in the work as a newly widowed person and it's it's just amazing yeah i'm just picturing her going like oh let's see what vincent thought of me uh oh, oh. <laughs> that's uh not mm. what i was hoping for <laughs> so uh good news i finished translating that letter um i don't know if you're gonna like it very much <laughs> want me to give you the long and the short of it uh <laughs> french foreign legion yeah <laughs> it, 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 it is interesting though again though i feel like every story like this not to keep you know comparing it to general like stories about artists or scenes or historical creativity it's just like you know whenever you talk about like selling out or like the media trying to create a frenzy or like you know there's there's always this like idea that like good stuff will just purely organically rise to fame or people will recognize the greatness organically of like true art and like even with the greatest works of art or music or literature or whatever there has to be this like branding sales component and like a luck component and timing and like it's like yeah you know it's not just he didn't just die it's interesting hearing this it's like it's not just he died and everyone was so in awe of his paintings they finally discovered he was great and then the value soared it's like a very deliberate effort and like lots of labor and pr like it it, it, which is almost always the case 
And like, I feel like people often talk about that. Like it's like a thing that diminishes true creativity or like, you know, it's like the antithesis of like art in it, but it's like, it has to be present in some form for every, anything to succeed. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, yeah, and I, in researching this, I think I got less excited about the guy, but I still really like the work. Like I, I used to have a print of a different painting by him called the drinkers that my brother got me. Like I, starry night, I still really like looking at, but like, I'm also not a longtime art critic or scholar or something. Like I wouldn't know about this guy without his sister-in-law's effort to do those things and make those moves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. None of us would. I wouldn't. I didn't know anything that we talked about here except for just the painting. Yeah. And that he got off his ear. That's the first thing you learn when you're like five years old. Which he also would probably not have been a big fan of. He's like, oh, all they know is the ear thing. The one time I cut off my ear. <laughs> I painted Starry Night. <laughs> like, <laughs> all, yeah, all anyone wants to talk about is the ear. <laughs> <laughs> no one no one in here has done something they regret it's like, <laughs> how, how many people here have considered attacking Gauguin with a razor be honest everyone like it's like begrudgingly puts their hands up he's like yeah okay all right a group group dm afterwards everyone's like couldn't say this in the moment but thank god right uh, huge a-hole <laughs> the main episode for this week. My thanks to Lydia Bug and Dan Hopper for gazing at this canvas with me, because boy, are there a lot of details to notice. Down to the micron. Anyway, I said that's the main episode, because there is more secretly incredibly fascinating stuff available to you right now. If you support this show on Patreon.com. Patrons get a bonus show every week where we explore one obviously incredibly fascinating story related to the main episode. This week's bonus topic is a pair of related stories. It's how the Starry Night ended up in New York City and how the Starry Night's rough draft ended up in Soviet Russia. Visit sifpod.fun for that bonus show for a library of almost 10 dozen other bonus shows and to back this entire podcast operation. And thank you for exploring the Starry Night with us. Here's one more run through the big takeaways. Takeaway number one, the Starry Night is a fictional mashup of a real place. Takeaway number two, the brush strokes of the Starry Night are measurably engineered in a cognitive psychology way and a physics way to make you feel like the painting is moving. And takeaway number three, the main reason we've heard of The Starry Night is Vincent Van Gogh's sister-in-law. Those are the takeaways. Also, please follow my guests. They're great. Lydia Bug is a weekly columnist for 1-900-HOT-DOG. She is one of the core people who makes that comedy site go and does awesome comedy writing there. It's just great. She's also on their podcast, The Dog Zone 9000, and I'm linking that and so much more comedy writing from Lydia. Dan Hopper, also a wonderful comedy writer. You can find him every day at Ranker.com, where he's a managing editor. 
And you can find more of his comedy writing in The New Yorker. He has written a very funny piece for The Washington Post. He's awesome on Twitter, at Dan Hop with two Ps. Lydia Awesome there as well, at You Know Lydia. These are both just wonderful comedy minds. And I'm very grateful they were here to make this show happen. Many research sources this week. Here are some key ones. I dug into a couple books about Van Gogh to prepare this. One of them is the book Van Gogh the Life. That is by art biographers Stephen Nife and Gregory White Smith. Also dipped into a book called The Starry Night. It's just about the painting and is written by Richard Thompson, who is a professor of fine art at the University of Edinburgh. And then of all my digital resources, I think the most amazing was the stuff from the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. In particular, I want to recommend seeing their digitization with 329 million points of data of this painting that you can pull up on your computer. I don't know how powerfully you can pull it up on your computer, but it's there. You can get a great look at it without leaving your place. Find those and many more sources in this episode's links at sifpod.fun. And beyond all that, our theme music is Unbroken Unshaven by The Budos Band. Our show logo is by artist Burton Durand. Special thanks to Chris Souza for audio mastering on this episode. Extra, extra special thanks go to our patrons. I hope you love this week's bonus show. And thank you to all our listeners. I'm thrilled to say we will be back next week with more Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. So how about that? Talk to you then.